might well imagine the opportunity to bring engaging, accomplished guests to World Affairs Council members and the general public is an enjoyable privilege. And tonight's program with ambassadors Mark Grossman and John Limbert is a special treat as they join us to launch Believers Love in Death in Tehran. These accomplished diplomats, it really is their first foray into writing a, writing a novel, spy fiction. And I have to tell you, it really is one of the best spy novels that I've read in a very long time. We sometimes say to aspiring authors, keep your day job, but that's not the case with this book. They should leave theirs and get going on a sequel. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and welcome to tonight's conversation where we're gonna dive into espionage, Iran-US relations over the last 40 years, our diplomats' commitment to the United States, and what successful spy novel doesn't have a bit of sex and some really nefarious characters. I wanna give special recognition to Ed Kotman, who is the sponsor of tonight's program. He first met Mark Grossman some five years ago when we were riding bicycles on a beautiful evening along the Blue Ridge Mountains. I also wanna recognize and thank our promotional partners, always the World Affairs Councils of America, World Boston, World Affairs Council of Orange County, World Affairs Council of Greater Houston and World Oregon. And of course, I know that Bill Clifford, the president of the World Affairs Councils of America is in our audience and members across the country. Now, Mark Grossman is known to many of you, not just for his distinguished career as a diplomat, and that's important, no doubt, but what I know him for and what many of you know him as was he was former chairman of the World Affairs Councils of America position he held for over three years, and then something happened. President Obama grabbed him away from us and appointed him to be special emissary, special representative to Afghanistan and Pakistan after the death of Richard Holbrook. Now, both of these gentlemen have served our country with great distinction, exceptional service with the Foreign Service. Mark served for nearly three decades, holding a, a range of positions including uh, the State Department's highest, uh, third highest ranking position, uh, usually reserved for a professional diplomat, uh, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. And he currently serves, when he's not writing best-selling novels, Vice Chairman of the Cohen Group. John, he spent 34 years as a career diplomat serving mostly in the Middle East. He was our ambassador to Mauritania. And from 2009 to 2010, he left a teaching position at the Naval Academy to return to the State Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for specific responsibility for Iran. And as you will soon know, he was one of the last American diplomats to serve at the American Embassy in Tehran, where he was held hostage for 444 long days when the embassy was seized. And following John's release, some might have just shied away from anything pertaining to that part of the world but he continued to follow a scholarship on Iran, as well as Iran's tortured relationship with the United States. Gentlemen, it's great to have you with us this evening. Thank you for being here and congratulations. Thank you very thank much. You, thank you, thank you, Jim. So before we start talking about your book, which will be great fun, I'd, I'd like to just remember that Brent Scowcroft passed away today at the ripe old age of 95. I know both of you worked with him. Uh, Mark, could I start by asking you about your, your thoughts and, and memories of this distinguished statesman? Well, Jim, thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. Um, as you say, before we talk about the book, I think it's well worth stopping for a moment to think a little bit about Brent Scowcroft. Uh, I had the opportunity to work with Brent several times during my career. Uh, first, when I was the deputy chief of mission in Turkey during the first Gulf War, when I think as the national security advisor, he ran one of the greatest, greatest processes to make good foreign policy uh, that I had the opportunity to participate in. He was also enormously kind to me when I was the ambassador to Turkey uh, and kept an eye out for me. And then many times after uh, both of us had retired, his door was always open for some advice, some kindness. Uh, and I found him just always to be a kind man and a great man and exactly the kind of public servant uh, that makes America great. John, your thoughts? At that same time, uh, at the time of uh, Desert, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, um, I was 
American Consul General in Dubai in the United Arab, uh, in the United Arab Emirates. And we saw how uh, Brent Scowcroft and his team, and that was what, that was the remarkable, uh, the, the remarkable thing, uh, how they built this, co how they built the coalition, how they defined goals, brought to, and, and, and brought this group together, which no one thought, uh, no one thought possible. Um, the other thing I would note was that the, the, the decision that they took not to go beyond the goals that they had set for Desert, for De, um, for Desert Storm in, in, in 1991 um, proved, proved correct, proved extremely correct in 2003 uh, during, the, during, the, uh, the invasion of Bag during the invasion of Iraq. And I had the fortune or misfortune to be also serve at that time. And you could see the diff and, and you could see the difference uh, between the, the, different the different policies. Most any book you read on foreign policy, and I'm thinking about also the new book that just came out, uh, I think it was called uh, Guardians or the book about the various National, National Security Council. Uh, Brent Scowcroft is always held up as, as, as really the, the gold standard. Well, he earned it. So Mark, I think the idea of believers really came from, from you. So let me ask you how you came up with this. How long has it been germinating in your mind? And then tell us about how you uh, uh, caught, for lack of a better word, John Limbert and brought him into this, into this effort. Well, thank you very much, Jim. And let me now just thank you for this opportunity. As you said, uh, this is the very first time that we've had a public event. This is our launch. I can't think of a person I'd rather be doing it with than you. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. And maybe just allow me also to thank all the people on your team who uh, organized this. And uh, Bill Clifford, if you're out there, I thank you very much. And I look uh, back on my time as uh, working with the World Affairs Council of America as a great time in my life. Jim, I had this idea, a tiny idea, uh, several years ago. And it kind of, I had a thought that what if on the 4th of November, 1979, there had been one more American Foreign Service officer in Tehran that had not been caught up in the embassy hostage taking. And what if that person had been able to survive outside of the embassy? And what if that person had been able to be inserted in the various historical comings and goings of US-Iran relations? I thought about this for some time, and the thing I realized was I had not the slightest capability of doing this by myself, uh, that I didn't know nearly enough about Iran. I didn't know nearly enough about what would have happened. Uh, and so one afternoon, I took John Limbert to lunch, and I told him about this kernel, kernel uh, of an idea. And over the next several years, we worked on it. Uh, you'll see uh, through the book that uh, we worked on it together. And I hope what we've created is something that uh, people will find uh, interesting and fun. As you said, we worked hard for uh, a number of years. Uh, we set ourselves, Jim, a series of goals. Uh, the first thing is we wanted to try to tell a good story. And this is fiction. And we just wanted people to turn the page and see what was going to happen next. Second thing, we wanted to make sure that it didn't sound like a State Department memo, right? So we have 65 years of experience uh, of writing for bureaucracy. And so we didn't want that to be true. Third, we wanted, as you said in your introduction, we wanted to pay tribute uh, to the Foreign Service and pay tribute to the military, pay tribute to our intelligence colleagues. And as you will see from the dedication of the book, that's what we did. We dedicated this book to our colleagues in the Foreign Service, the intelligence agencies, uh, to the military, and also those Iranians who have struggled for many years uh, for a better life. And finally, uh, we wanted to make sure, or try, and we leave it to you to decide, uh, we wanted to uh, make it so that as people read the book, they couldn't really say, oh, John Limbert wrote that, and Mark Grossman wrote that. And so we went through a very long process of exchanging chapters back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I say, I, I leave to you and others to decide whether we succeeded, but it was one of our goals. Uh, it, was a great, um, it was a great experience. And uh, one of the things that people keep asking us 
is whether we've remained friends over this time. And I'm glad to say that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And I think you both are still yeah. married and all that. So that's a good sign. Uh, you know, I've, I've failed to say if anybody has questions, I hope you'll ask them at any time. Just go into the Q&A box and we'll weave them into the conversation. Mark, would you mind if I read the dedication? We'd love that. Thank you. We dedicate this book to our colleagues, the men and women of the U.S. Foreign Service, along with their co-workers in the civil service, the intelligence community, and the military. They proudly serve the people of the United States of America. We also honor those Iranians who have endured so much loss and still seek a better future for their families and their country. John, I'd like you to tell us about how you ended up at the embassy in 1979. How long were you there before you were taken hostage? Okay, well, my, my own, Jim, uh, let me, well, first of all, um, add my thanks to to Mark's, uh, to Mark's, to you, to you and Rachel and the whole group at the World Affairs Council. As he noted, this is our, this is our, um, this is our debut. This is our coming out party for the, uh, for the, for the book. Um, my own connections to Iran go back uh, well over 50 years, uh, and they go back in a lot of ways. My connections go as a, I've been there as, I was there as a teacher, I was there as a student, as a student, as a research, uh, uh, as a researcher, as a Peace Corps volunteer in the six in the, in the 60s, but uh, probably my deepest connection, uh, and I, I expect this would come out in the book, um, is as a member of a very proud Iran, uh, Iranian-American family. So as a spouse, uh, as a parent, as a grandparent, and as a brother-in-law, uh, son-in-law, and so forth. Uh, and so forth. Um, and uh, when Mark came to me with his kernel of ideas, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I said, of course, let's do this. Um, and we sort of took off from there and never, uh, never look back. Now, I, I would also say, um, I think as any good author will tell you, we went through probably about 15 different versions uh, of this book because you always find things. And as Mark mentioned, um, you always find places and you say, my God, this reads like a State Department uh, briefing, uh, State Department briefing memo. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and Mark, you, you told me this a few days ago, that there are some State Department reporting in here, and it seems so accurate, so real, that, uh, Mark, tell, people, tell, tell, tell our audience what people have asked you. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the things about writing historical fiction um, is, is that people have a hard time sometimes dis distinguishing between the history and the fiction. Um, and John uh, was kind enough to send the text uh, to someone who was an early reader of the book and uh, someone who's a professional actually in the business, she's an agent. Um, and one of the things that she asked us was, was whether the reporting of our hero, Neelifer Hartman, this young American Foreign Service officer, um, her reporting back to the State Department, whether we had gotten it by, uh, by seeking it through the Freedom of Information Act. And we had to say, well, no, it's fiction. Uh, and, and, and this is writing actually we know how to do, but those reports are completely made up, uh, completely out of our heads, as is the rest of the story. Well, one of the things, too, about it that I've found just so well done is the, the, the suspense. And you really feel that. And as you said, you want every page to be a page turner, and I think you succeeded doing that. Let's go back to November 1979. Um, Mark, you and I have known each other for a long time, but I didn't know that you were so involved uh, as, as a desk officer. Um, tell us how you first learned about the embassy being uh, occupied. Well, as, as we've talked, um, again, uh, I did not have the experience, of course, that John had, um, but I was what was called the staff assistant uh, to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. And that's a very low ranking position um, but somebody who was involved in uh, some of this policy. And uh, I heard about the taking of the embassy uh, very early in the morning, Washington, D.C. time, uh, from a call that came, obviously, from the embassy to the State Department Operations Center. The Operations Center then did a series of alerts to the secretary, to the deputy secretary, and, of course, to my boss, Harold Saunders, 
uh, who was then the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs because it was his day-to-day -day responsibility. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Um, and so uh, this was a time that was, as all of you will recall, a time of great flux in the area. It was the second time, of course, that the embassy had been attacked, first time in February of 79. And so I heard about it from the operations center and uh, for the next 444 days, you can say that it dominated my life. Again, not in the way that it dominated John's, but uh, dominated my life as well. And John, I'm sure you've been asked this <laughs> way too many times, but what were your, what were your feelings? What happened on uh, those first few days? Did you, did you have any idea that you would be held hostage for as long as you were? And what type of communication did, did the embassy have with, with people such as, as, as Ambassador Grossman? Um, no, I mean, there, in, in these things, uh, attacks on embassies are not new, unfortunately. Uh, um, unfortunately. Um, and so there is a, you know, there, there's a standard, there's a procedure you follow. One of them immediately is to get a hold of the, um, the, the State Department's 24-hour operations center, which then notifies the people um, uh, the, uh, the people who need to know, such as uh, the staff assistant, and uh, Mark may have, may have called himself low-ranking, but these, such people in those, those positions are key, and their decisions are key as to who gets notified, how quickly, and what information is out there. Uh, um, uh, is out there. And the standard in, in, such, uh, um, in such events is for a senior... American official, perhaps, perhaps a, an assistant secretary, maybe a undersecretary, maybe the secretary himself, perhaps even the president himself, if, necess if necessary, to immediately be in contact with the, with the host government, which is after all responsible for our safety, which is responsible for our safety, and say, look, you have to protect these people. You, this 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 is outrageous. You can't let this let this happen. The problem was in this case, there was nobody. To answer the phone, nobody within the with who had any authority to do anything was taking call, was to, was taking calls. So what started out uh, as essentially a 1970s style um, student sit-in, which some of us remember better than others, and some of us may have even participated in, transformed itself into um, an international crisis. Uh, an international call, I call it sometimes an international melodrama uh, that captured um, certainly American political life for over a year and much of the, much of the world as well and cost, uh, President, uh, cost President Carter uh, his, his presidency. Uh, now, on the second day, and this, this is reflected in the book, I mean, the book goes, I think, follows, uh, follows this on, I think, the first or second day, very, very early on, um, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was essentially held supreme power in Iran, held supreme power in Iran, um, endorsed, to everyone's surprise, endorsed this uh, takeover. And once that happened, um, I think it was pretty clear uh, that we were not going anywhere very soon that we were in for a very long, uh, a very long siege. You know, one of the things that's always dangerous when you're talking about novels, you don't want to, especially when they're thrillers, spoiler alert. So we want to be careful not to give away too much of the story. But one of the key aspects is the friendship of the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, uh, Alan Porter, and the, the discussions he continued to have with high-ranking Iranian diplomats. And I suspect, we see this so often when there are coup d'etats, that you have diplomats that are quite shocked. They're trying to represent their government, but they're not even sure who their government is, or they're not comfortable with the direction. 
either one of you might, I guess, Mark, you were in Washington at the time, obviously. What type of communication did you have or the diplomats have uh, with Iranian diplomats as they were trying to frankly feel their way? Well, I must say that this is one of the cases where the book, uh, when I look back, I would have been very glad uh, if we would have had a good, a good communication link like the one we put into the book. Uh, one of the challenges of that whole first several months, as you can imagine, Jim, was that every single person came out of the woodwork to say, oh, I'm the, I'm the source, I'm the contact. And there were lawyers and there were psychiatrists and uh, we, 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 we felt we went after every lead we could. Um, and so this is a place where um, I guess we, we, put, <laughs> we put it in there fictionally um, but actually the reality was much worse than the fiction. Uh, we would have been very pleased uh, to have been able to have a contact uh, like Arash, the person in that in, in the embassy. Did our discussions, uh, were, were, the, were the Swiss who represented us or who was, which country did the interest section? Yes, the Swiss. The Swiss. Um, John, let's, let's go back to after 444 days how did you uh, learn that you were going to be released? Did you have any advance notice or when you left the embassy, were you concerned about where you might go? Sort of set the stage for us there. And then if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to read a section uh, from your book. And I, I think you chose a section about this. And again, let me remind all of you, please uh, send in your questions. Uh, we're not gonna talk too much, I don't think, about current Iran-US relations, but I have some questions about uh, the early period, and I bet you do too. John, back to you. Um, sure. Well, um, we were we were cut off cut off from news. I mean, we had no access to newspapers or uh, radio except what we could do, what we could get sur surreptitiously. Um, so we knew, uh, or I knew that there had been this attempt in uh, March of nineteen February, March of nineteen eighty, which. Uh, Mark mentioned some of the uh, uh, international wheeler dealers had uh, had pushed for had uh, had pushed forward with the then um, Iranian foreign minister, which ended in uh, ended in uh, uh, failure, uh, and th there were back and forth. And we had visit. We occasionally would have visits from uh, this person or that per certain certain persons as as intermediaries. Um, but it wasn't until around uh, Christmas of nineteen. 80, we had a visit from um, a group of Algerian diplomats, um, including uh, one of the characters in the book, one of the people in the book, uh, Abu Karim Garayeb, who was the Algerian uh, ambassador in, Tehra uh, um, in Tehran. And it was clear these were very serious people and there were very serious efforts going, uh, going on. They, they did not give us a lot of detail, but it was certainly the best news that we had had in a long time. We also knew the Shah had died. We also knew that Iran was in this war with Iraq. So there were things, and of course we knew there was going to be a change of administration in Washington. Uh, Washington. I mean, that much we knew, that, mu that much, uh, at least some of us knew, uh, uh, at least some of us knew. Um, but, so the groundwork was, the groundwork was set and then it, but it wasn't until um, the night before that, uh, the students actually came in and told us that we were going to be leaving the next day. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the next day, and you know, you you wanted to believe it, but at the same time, you remained skeptical because you had to be careful. You had you didn't want to get your hopes up too high, uh, and then have them da uh, um, and have them dashed because there had been previous rumors, uh, and they had not they had not amounted to anything. Would you like me to read the section? Uh, I'd love for you to do that. Yes, please. Okay. And, and let me also remind everyone before you do that, that you can pick up a copy of the book by going to Amazon. Uh, easy to pick up, uh, be at your doorstep in one to two days, or you can even start reading it tonight because there's a Kindle edition available. John, please read. Okay. Well, what happens uh, basically is she, she, uh, uh, she goes. She ends up in Ter uh, in Tehran. She arrives in Tehran the night of the uh, the night before the takeover, and before she can go to work the next day, she uh, the embassy is seized. Um, and she because of her background, her family background, her upbringing, 
um, uh, she is able to remain in Tehran. She changes her name from Nilufar to the much more Islamic Masume. Uh, uh, Masume. She gets, uh, with the help of a, some, uh, uh, someone from her mother's family, uh, she is able to get doc uh, documentation and she ends up working in the office of the second most powerful man in Iran, Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, a real figure. Now we've put him in the center of things he may not have been in. This is a, because this is this is fiction, but he is a, a, a real person, was a real person of power. So uh, the night of the release, the night of um, January 20th, uh, 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 January 20th, uh, Ayatollah Beheshti asks her to go to the airport and to be his eyes and ears on the ground and to make sure this thing goes smoothly because he has promised the imam. The imam Khomeini has told him this has to work. This, there can't be any problems. So she goes to the airport. And let me apologize in advance. Some of the language in here is a little bit rough, but uh, I hope- We're basically cable. <laughs> I hope your audience will understand. I hope your audience will, un uh, will understand. So, so Nilufar is at the airport. At 7.30 p.m., uh, two more buses arrived and parked about 75 yards from the planes. Journalists and students moved to an area between the buses and the aircraft. The Algerian security men kept them from getting closer than 20 yards from the plane. The bus doors opened. A few student guards got off. When the Americans appeared, Nilufar gasped at their appearance, thin, haggard, bearded, and dazed. They wore odds and ends of ill-fitting clothes, unsuited for the wind and cold. As they stepped off the bus, they appeared confused by the noise, the lights, and the crowds of students and journalists. A few had to be directed to walk toward the aircraft. As they began to walk, the students performing for the cameras started shouting slogans. Nilufar thought, what a chicken shit group. They can't even do a departure with any style. One of the students started pushing a hostage, an army medic who wasn't moving fast enough for him. The medic turned on him and shouted in English, don't push me, you piece of shit. The student pushed harder, and the hostage grabbed his arm. A second hostage put himself inches from the student's face and started berating him in fluent street Persian. Take your hands off him, you son of a whore. When he leaves, you can go back to buggering little boys. Nilufar pulled aside the Persian-speaking American and told him quietly in English, just get out of here. Get on the plane. Some people are trying to provoke a riot and ruin everything. Don't play into their hands. Go now. This, the students kept their distance. He nodded in understanding backed, and backed away and walked toward the airplane. As he left, Nilufar whispered to the American, by the way, I really like your Persian. You must have had a great teacher. He smiled and replied, yes, I did. She was great. You weren't that hostage, were you, who spoke the no. Farsi? In that, in that passage, uh, in that passage, there's a tip of the hat to three people. Um, maybe I can I can mention who they I should I can mention Please. who they are. One is the army medic, a man named Don Homan. The other is a fellow hostage, Mike Matrinko, and the other is Mike Matrinko's Persian teacher, who is my wife, Parvane Limber. <laughs> so we have a question from Ray Termini, and Ray wants to know: While you were held hostage, John, where did you live? And most importantly, were you able to talk or correspond with your family or other people? Uh, we stayed most of the time. Most of the time, we were uh, we were in the embassy building uh, for about the first six months. For about the first six months, um, after the failed rescue attempt in April of 1980, 
um, most of us were moved out of Tehran around the country. Around the country, I was in Esfahan, which is about uh, six, seven hours south of Tehran. Uh, south of Tehran um, until August, we were brought back to Ter brought back to Tehran in August, but never went back to the embassy. Um, in terms of letters to uh, to and from family, yes, we. Uh, I would. Uh, I wrote frequently. Uh, maybe one letter in 10, one letter in 20 got through the same way from letters from friends and uh, uh, from friends and relatives. Of course, we were the perfect uh, 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 elementary school project for, for students, for, for teachers. So every, every student had to write a letter to, the, to, to one of the hostages. And, you know, you hated to say this, but you really wish that they hadn't because uh, if, if, if you know you only got a certain amount, a certain amount of mail, and you would have much preferred to get a letter from your family than uh, from a third, from a, a very well-meaning third grader. Mark, um, believe it or not, we probably have some people who weren't alive or reading the papers in 1980, 1981. Uh, sort of set the stage there about in Washington. It was uh, assumed that the hostages would be released but not until uh, President Reagan uh, took over. Uh, sort of, you know, what, what, what was the attitude in the, in the State Department and, and what exactly were you doing on, on those days uh, right before the hostages were, were released? Yes, it was a time, of course, uh, again, so many, of, uh, so many of your audience probably, as you say, did not live this. And uh, one of the things we tried to do in the book was convey enough information so that uh, people who didn't live it could still be, I hope, uh, enjoy the story. Um, but it was a time when the hostages, as John said in his introduction, they just dominated the news. And uh, there was, as you will recall, and perhaps others, but maybe not all of your audience, um, a, uh, a newscaster at that time, one of the great newscasters, Walter Cronkite, who ended every single broadcast of the news for 444 days by counting out the numbers. And so it just seeped into people's psyche uh, that this was an enormously difficult time for the United States of America. And as John said, you know, these hostage takings and the attacks on the embassies wasn't the only one in Tehran. It was the one where the hostages were taken. But in that month, our embassy in Libya was attacked. Our embassy in Islamabad was attacked. And people there got out with, this, you know, with their lives. And so I think there was a general feeling that it was just an enormously difficult time. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan in December of 1979. So it was a tough, tough time uh, at the State Department, at the White House. Uh, oddly enough, I had been assigned uh, after some time as the staff assistant in the Bureau of New Eastern Affairs uh, to the White House. Uh, but once President Carter was defeated, I was returned to the State Department. They didn't really have very much for me to do at the time. and so. Actually, on the 20th of January, uh, I was sitting home. After all those weeks and days and months of working on it, I was at home watching it on television like everybody else in the United States. So we have a, a question from in the audience, and he just have his uh, number, so I can't give you his name. And But it is a question I was wondering about, too. Uh, this person says, I was in Iran in 2017 with a group sponsored by the New York Times. And he says he was unaware about just how the Iranians despised the Shah. And were we fully aware of that when we sheltered him in the United States? And I'd like to ask you to go a bit beyond that and say, what were your thoughts, uh, both of you, about the decision to give the Shah medical treatment in the States? No, I mean, I, I uh, when I joined, when I, I joined the Foreign Service in, in 1973, and one of the, I already, I'd lived in Iran, I spoke the language, um, and people asked me, some of the people at the department asked me if I wanted to go and serve in Iran, and I said no, because um, our policy, frankly, at the time, I thought was, uh, uh, was unhealthy. I was uneasy, I was uneasy about it. We were, we were simply too, too close to the monarchy. We were, and were identified with, 
um, with the with the problems involved with some of the abuses with the uh, human rights abuses with the mismat with some of the mismanagement and the extrav uh, uh, um, and the extravagance uh, and this was not well received I had I had lived in Iran among middle-class people and known them and this was not always well received or appreciated by a broad segment of the popular broad segment of the population so I said no and it wasn't until um, 1978, 79, uh, that I did go that uh, uh, that I did go there. As far as the decision to admit uh, 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 to admit the Shah, it's a fast. It's a it's actually a, a fascinating story recounted. I think in a number of places. One notably in uh, Hamilton Jordan's memoirs, where um, President Carter. Who is Hamilton Jordan? Just Hamilton Jordan. I'm sorry. Was um, uh, chief of staff. President, President Carter's chief of staff. Right. Um, and he's um, and President Carter never wanted to admit the Shah. He uh, and he was pressured. He was pressured to do so, notably by um, uh, by Kissinger, by Henry Kissinger and uh, David Rockefeller. But he resisted. Um, uh, he re uh, um, he resisted, and he was supported by Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. And it wasn't until October of '79 uh, that. Uh, October of '79, that the Shah, that the U.S. government learned that the Shah had cancer and was dying in Mexico and would die there if he didn't receive immediate tr uh, treatment in the U um, uh, in the U.S. Um, and against his own better judgment, President Carter decided to admit the Shah. Uh, one one thing had happened was Cyrus Vance changed his position. Changed his position. And urged him to do so. Um, urged him to do so. But one of the last things that, uh, when Jimmy Carter made the decision, uh, he asked his uh, he asked his people, uh, "All right, but what are you going to tell me to do when our embassy is overrun and our people are taken hostage?" He so, called it. He foresaw. It. He foresaw it, and he did it anyway. And we we learned this about around the twentieth, twenty first of October. And basically, the message to us was. Um, you we're, we're making this decision. We're not consulting you, uh, and you are um, expendable. So, one of our uh, member of the staff at the World Affairs Council, Dallas Fort Worth, Beth Huddleston, she wants to know more about other missteps that President Carter might have made that truly exacerbated the the tensions between the United States and Iran, and what lessons might we learn today from? the administration and, and, and Carter's uh, handling of this whole situation? Well, I personally, and, and, and Mark may want to step in here, but I personally will not, will not uh, and, and I, I admire President Carter uh, as a humanitarian, as a human being. Um, and, you know, it's very easy to criticize and say, well, he should have done this or he should have done that. Uh, but on the other hand, um, <laughs> I can't, I'm not in a position to criticize him because I'm here alive today because of the position he took. And he, I think he sacrificed his, uh, well, there, there, I, there, there I am, a slightly, different, slightly thinner and darker and younger, uh, younger me. Um, but uh, because of the position that he took and because he, his determination was that we were, he was gonna get us out alive, whatever, it, you know, safely, whatever it took. Uh, and perhaps uh, he's, for that reason, he sacrificed his presidency. John, how did the, your treatment change after the ill-fated uh, attempt to rescue you? Uh, I can't say it changed terribly, terribly much. Again, we were moved around. We were moved out of Tehran. Some people uh, into quite remote places, uh, and um, I think there was a sense of uh, a sense of more of, of hopelessness that you know, oh my God, this is not going to be solved anytime anytime soon. I mean, if you're sitting in a little town in some, in some jail, uh, a thousand miles from Tehran, a thousand miles from Tehran, you know, you're not getting out anytime soon. Jim, may I go back to the point that uh, John made about the hostages coming out alive? Sure. One of the things that was most interesting to me, even for my kind of low level position in this was that that was President Carter's position. It was communicated clearly to the Secretary of State it came to the Assistant Secretary of State, Harold Saunders, and he spent his entire effort and told us over and over again, we want all of these people to come out alive. 
And I recognize that there are a lot of questions about national interest and how you balance these things. But when I look back, I think that for the United States of America to have put these lives at the top of the agenda, to have done what we did to make sure that people came out whole and alive uh, was a remarkable thing. And sometimes countries don't act that way. And I thought this was a consistent policy uh, that showed great care uh, for the human beings that we send abroad to represent our country. Good point. Let's go back to the book a little bit. And the book has several strong women. And of course, Nilofar Hartman is <laughs> the epitome of that. Why was it so important to you to uh, focus on women so much in, in this story and a bit about their uh, disappointment, their hopes when the Shah was overthrown and then later their disappointment? I'm not sure, Jim, how we came to it. When, when, uh, when Mark raised this, you know, kernel of an issue and said what, you know, he didn't say man, we didn't say man or woman, we just said an American, uh, an American uh, uh, foreign service officer at the, at the, uh, in Tehran. Uh, but somehow we came up with, I, I can't remember how we came up with the idea that it should be a woman, uh, um, it should be a woman. Uh, but it does illustrate a larger, um, a larger point. If you'll notice, um, you're exactly right. Uh, on the Iranian side in particular, um, the strong characters, uh, uh, not just Nilufar, but uh, her, mother, her mother Farzaneh, uh, her aunt uh, Minou, her, uh, her friend Nazanin, uh, uh, Naz and the, the women that she works with at the airport. I mean, these are tough, these are strong people. And basically, maybe this is, you know, drawing on my own experience there is that um, in, in, uh, in, in that society, that's where the strength, that's where the strength of society comes from. These are the people that hold it together. The men recite poetry. <laughs> they sit around and drink tea uh, and argue politics or literature or history or whatever. But it's the women who are holding things, uh, uh, who are holding things together. And in, the, in a patriarchal society, I mean, the deck is stacked against them in many, way, uh, um, in many ways. Uh, to make your way in the world, uh, and Nazanin, I think, is a good is a good example of that. One has to be well. Uh, one has to be very strong. Also, we mentioned this about Farzan uh, uh, about Far, uh, about Farzaneh, her mother. Uh, you know, when she marries, a, when she ends up marrying her husband David, the foreigner, um, the American, and her uh, family says, "Look, she would never have uh, she would it would never have worked for her to have married into an Iranian family." The expectation of hers would have been too much, and she's too independent-minded. Independent May I also say that uh, two things. One is I also think one of the reasons that Nilofer Hartman turned out to be female uh, is that we're both fathers of daughters. And I, I, I think when I consider you know, the, the sort of strength of them, uh, it's, it, we wanted to put that strength and resilience uh, into this character first. Second, uh, again, without, um, without spoiling this, um, at the end of the book, uh, there's a very important climactic scene where the strength of Nilofar as a hero and as a female, uh, she uses to her advantage to convince a very large group of very skeptical Iranian men uh, that they need to do the patriotic and right thing. And uh, we tried there to uh, draw both her strength and her shrewdness as she made her arguments and as she used her emotions uh, to bring these men uh, to the right conclusion. And, and Mark, that's a, a good point, and I'll leave it up to your diplomatic skills to not give away too much, but uh, the story does take place where um, Nilafar is a young Foreign Service officer. She ends up teaching at Middlebury College, and then the Under Secretary of State comes back and knocks on her door. Uh, so there's really just a fascinating uh, time to watch her evolution and her role. Well, I think that the evolution of Nilofar is one of the most interesting things about the book. And of course, she evolved in our story as we evolved the story. Mm -hmm. And I think about the themes that run through this book. You know, and one of the most important is resilience. And that is a resilience that really lives through her 
and honor and family and service. Uh, and they're all kind of embodied and embedded in her. And uh, as, again, without sort of taking the story, you know, she has this time in Iran, which ends tragically. And as you say, returns to the United States, says, I'm never going to work for the United States of America again. But when called upon, this patriotism that she had that made her join the Foreign Service in the first place, it never left her. And so uh, she was uh, willing to take a second risk for her country. And, and she There's was another in streak in there, if I, might, if I might add, if oh, I might add that, where she, we, we have, you know, we have her working for a number of years um, as a member of the morals police in Tehran. Uh, in Tehran. Now, this is not a pleasant job, and these are not pleasant people. These are these are not pleasant people. And at one time, Secretary Porter, Under Secretary Porter, asks her mother, or her parents, "How can she do this? How can she be at the? You know, these are really the 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 most brutal, the most." Uh, uh, unthinking the sort of the dregs of society. these people are the are the dregs of society and they're detested uh, by almost every everyone how can she do this um and the uh, farzane the mother turns and says i think i know she's a lot like me um john uh candy robinson asks could you speak for a minute about robert uh ode ode and his diary i guess he was one of the oldest hostages who died what about uh 10 15, probably what 1995 is that right I, I i don't know exactly when but he was the old he was the uh, uh our he was a senior um uh among us i i as i remember he he was um back he was a he was working he had retired actually from the service and was called back um, and volunteered to go to Tehran as a to help in the consular say in the consular section because our, our consular section was there he is yes there he is uh, was overwhelmed uh, by about we had a backlog the day that the embassy was seized we had a backlog of somewhere over thirty to forty thousand Iranians uh, seeking visas to get seeking to get out now they must have known something. That we didn't, uh, but Bob Odie, you know, Bob volunteered, came back, and got caught, and and like many of and like all of us, got got caught up in these events. You know, Mark and John, when you think about Iranian history, and Mark knows this, uh, John, I didn't mention to you, my advisor at the University of Virginia with Ruhollah Ramazani, sure, one of the real deans of U.S. Iranian relations, and there were so many missed opportunities on both sides to reconcile. And when you think now on the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, you know, where we now have relations with Japan, and, and yet with Iran, we've just been unable to. And Mark, when you think about some of the mistakes that have happened as far as U.S. foreign policy, trying to balance our relations with Iran and Iraq, um, you know, how did we mess up so badly? What options did we have? And is there a defining point where we might have gone in one direction or the other? Well, again, uh, you know, we, we tried in our book to put Nilofar into uh, some of those historical scenes and opportunities. Uh, some of them, uh, which as you say, uh, didn't work out very well. I don't know if John would agree with me, but one of the things that I uh, think as perhaps this is a generational question for me, I don't know about for him or for others, um, but I read once that one of the challenges in U.S.-Iran relations is that we tend to think about U.S.-Iran relations in the perspective of the hostages in the 444 days. And Iranians tend to think about U.S. relations about the Iran-Iraq war when essentially the world abandoned them to, you know, fight and have chemical weapons used on them and have uh, missiles dropped on them. So I think there's an enormous, enormous, enormous uh, difference in the way uh, of thinking about these things. You know, my last job, uh, I was recalled to the services you were kind enough to say to be the US Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, and Afghanistan, of course, at that time when I was working on it, 2012, 2011, 2012, was one of actually the few places in the world where we actually had some interests that combined anti-Taliban, the drugs, 
refugees. But even then, we couldn't figure out a way for me to talk to the Iranians or Ryan Crocker, who was then the ambassador to Afghanistan, to talk to the Iranians. It's just one um, inability after another to kind of have the mental breakthrough to move forward. Mark, how long does it take to walk from the White House to the, your office and the office you held in the State Department? Well, it takes about 15 or 16 minutes, actually. So I thought one of the fascinating parts in your book, and I highlighted it, was, and, and I'll ask you to read it, but, you know, we, we hear so often now about whether or not people should resign from their positions if they're in disagreement with the administration. Take us into that section read it to us and tell us if you ever been in that type of position and how you handled it. Thank you very much. Obviously well, you didn't resign to the best of my knowledge. But <laughs> I did not. Um, so this, I'll give you a, a small introduction like John did. Uh, this scene takes place after a conversation that Undersecretary Porter, this fictional character, uh, has with the President of the United States and it's after the Iraqis uh, use chemical weapons in Halabja. And the question is, what should we say to Saddam Hussein about this? And Porter loses an argument. And so I have him walk away from his meeting in the Oval Office. And he gets down to the parking lot there and he says, and Porter told his driver that he'd walk the four blocks to the State Department. He left the White House through the Southwest Gate. Porter looked at the tourists as they gauged him. To them, he looked important, but they had no idea who he might be. To him, they looked free. Porter's thoughts kept coming back to Halabja, his deep misgivings about letting Saddam off the hook, his responsibilities as a foreign service officer, sworn to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and the compromises that are required to be the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs. He wondered if he should resign, not calling Halabja a crime was wrong, but was it wrong enough for him to quit? He'd often thought about where his line was, how much was too much. He'd read about the State Department's effort to keep Jews out of the United States during Hitler's terror. The State Department had opposed the creation of the State of Israel in 1947. Would he have stood up to the then masters of the Foreign Service? Thank goodness, he thought, for the young officers who refused to go along and they gave visas and support to Jews and others fleeing from the Holocaust. He thought of Hiram Bingham and Vichy, of the officers rescuing Vietnamese colleagues in 1975, and of the Tehran political officers defying orders to give Iranians visas in 1979. Did he think that he would never have to make moral compromises? He'd opposed the Vietnam War, but like so many others, he'd served there and he accepted the catechism of government servants everywhere, that he had more influence on the inside than outside. That's what it always comes down to, doesn't it? Supporter entered the State Department through the old entrance on 21st Street, perhaps hoping he would get some inspiration from the ghosts of Marshall and Atchison, who worked in offices just above the dark foyer with its WPA mural. By the time he reached his office on the south side of the building, he was sure of his most compelling reason to remain undersecretary beyond his love of serving the United States. And that was Neelifer Hartman. Very well done. Now I'm gonna tease the audience a little bit about um, the romance she had with a CIA officer. Um, and uh, I hope people will enjoy that too. And I, I wonder, uh, would that be an acceptable cover as a journalist? Uh, for a foreign newspaper. I'll give that away. But would that be an acceptable cover? <laughs> well, it's fiction. Um, and so uh, what, what you'll see what we've written in that section is, is that the then director of the CIA had to, had to seek an, a waiver uh, to the law, which says, no, you don't do that in the United States. Uh, and so for the purposes of our book, um, because we thought this would be a good story, uh, we've set it up that way. It's, so, it's, a, it's a measure of desperation, really, as to uh, during, that during that period, following 1979, uh, the U.S. had very, very few sources 
inside Iran. It's one of the reasons that uh, in our book we have Nilufar staying there as long as she did, uh, as long as she did, because there was nothing else. And as I go back to what something Mark said, which is crucial, that we had, um, you know, everyone with a uh, with with a briefcase and a good suit uh, showing up at the State Department, offering you know, services, information, I know this, I know that, I know this person, I can do, I can do this, and I can, I can, I can do that. And one of the results of that, of course, was Iran, was the fiasco of Iran, um, of Iran-Contra. Um, most of them, they simply, you know, simply uh, turned out the door as quickly as they came in, but it, unfortunately, some of them, some of them, they, um, some of them, they didn't. Um, so, uh, you know, whether it's whether you're supposed to use uh, somewhat journalistic cover or humanitarian cover or some other some other cover, um, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So we have just a few more minutes and I want to get to a few of the questions left. But let me just uh, read a quote that uh, the author of Black Dawn, uh, Black Hawk Down, excuse me, Black Hawk Down, Mark Bowden said about your book, an exceptionally intelligent novel a story that is suspenseful, romantic, and vitally important. This book never lets up, and I certainly agree with that. Ed Kopman has a question, uh, our favorite cyclist. Uh, he asks this question to you, John. What was your understanding of the role that Canada played in the release of The Hostages? Canada played, uh, 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 I, I assume most of your audience is familiar with this film, Ar with the film Argo. Um, uh, which you know it's 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 interesting i mean it's one of those things it's a it's the same sort of thing fiction and not this mixture of fiction and nonfiction. a lot of things in argo never happen uh, never happened but they made great sin but they great cinema and the basic story is true the basic story is true that six of our colleagues got away that day um and took refuge with the uh, Canadian ambassador and the Canadian DC and the Canadian deputy chief of uh, deputy chief of mission, um, and he, at great peril to himself and his uh, and his uh, family and his colleagues, uh, kept them hidden for over two months uh, um, for over two months until um, the CIA with Tony Mendez and his group um, were able to arrange to get them uh, 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 to get them out. I mean that that was a tremendous service. I, for one, have certainly never forgotten, uh, 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 never forgotten that. It's a great, and a it great appears movie. also, I should make a plug for the book. There's a, there's a, uh, that particular uh, escape. Um, we have Nilufar uh, um, involved in it when she's working as a security officer at the Tehran airport. Don't give too much away, John. Don't give too much away. So we have just another minute or so, and I always like to, and on whenever possible, and when you're talking about this area of the world, it's often difficult to do. Uh, but we have a question from Bill Clifford, President of the World Affairs Councils of America, and Ward Fredericks, a great supporter and uh, either a member of the board now or has been. And Bill says or asks, Iran has such a rich history, poetry, science, medicine, and our relations with Iran are so sour now. What is the role of exchanges and are any taking place now and let's add in Ward's question here. Is there any potential for repairing U.S.-Iran relationships in this generation? And I'll leave it up to you to each answer it. Give us 30 seconds, each of you. John, go ahead. Oh, uh, first. Well, that's the question. I, I When I taught at the Naval Academy, I taught a course on U.S.-Iran relations. And uh, that was that was my final exam question. And the students. And the answer. <laughs> that the students would. The students actually came up with some pretty good stuff, but then they would ask me, "What's the answer?" And I said, "Damn if I know." Ambassador me. Mark Grossman, what, you, what are your thoughts? Is there any hope? Well, Ward, I'm glad to hear you as well. Thank you. Um, I think the hope will come uh, with more and more citizen contact, as that's possible. Uh, I think this is a classic case of where uh, the change will come when more and more citizens are able to talk to one another. It's really hard now. I don't hold out any hope for uh, this to happen in the future, uh, the near future. Um, but I hope over time, uh, there'll be a return to visits, to, to the capacity of citizens to meet one another, and maybe that'll finally seep up to governments. There are not many loose ends in this book, but are you all thinking about writing another one? And I could picture, Mark, how you might do it with your experience with uh, negotiating with the Taliban. Got another book in you? 
Well, I don't know. Uh, but if we do, uh, you'll be the first person to let us talk about it. Well, I, I hope you do. Again, ladies and gentlemen, fantastic book. I hope you'll pick up a copy of it tonight on the Kindle or at Amazon. Uh, Believers, Love and Death in Tehran. Uh, it really was one of the most enjoyable reads I've had in several months. So congratulations to our good friends out there for, for writing it.